I just remember I started to feel incredibly tired, like an overwhelming feeling of being tired, like I felt like I could just fall asleep. I remember my son Stanley, he came out of the pool and I rushed him into the changing rooms, getting him changed, which is never easy anyway, but I felt really irritable and quite hot. I couldn't remember how I got there. I couldn't remember which roads I'd driven down. It was a strange feeling. And then I got out of the car and stepped through the front door. And as I stepped in the door, I got really intense pain right at the back of my head, just at the top of my neck. My husband Adam was in the kitchen and I said to him that I'd got a headache. I sort of deteriorated quite quickly and I couldn't speak. I remember asking him to go and get me a tissue because I could feel myself drooling, but I, no words came out of my mouth. When I opened my mouth, it was just a strange sound and he realised something, you know, was happening. My last memory was an unfamiliar voice calling my name, which must have been the paramedic, and then everything went blank. I was rushed off to hospital. Luckily, we only lived about 10 minutes from the hospital, so they took me off, and Adam stayed just to check Stanley was okay, and then he followed behind. Hello, it's Mark Goodyear, and this is Stroke Stories, the podcast that seeks out and hears from stroke survivors. Today we hear from Kate Green from Rotherham. Kate suffered a stroke in 2021 at the age of 42. I worked as a public health specialist at Rotherham Council. I'd been there for quite a few years, and I worked mainly on things to do with physical activity, getting people active. So I worked on various projects, initiatives, just to help people at Rotherham be more physically active. I love my job. You know, I still still love my job. I still do it. I'm very keen on sort of physical activity myself. I enjoyed running quite a lot. I've done for many years. Many moons ago, I took part in a couple of marathons and I've done some half marathons and various other sort of races. Around 10 years ago now, helped to set up my local park run. It was a pretty normal Thursday. I was working from home that day. I think we'd not really fully gone back into the office there was still COVID, a lot of COVID measures in place so we were mostly working from home. I'd had a pretty normal day at home, lots of meetings on teams, I had quite a lot of work to do that I felt, you know, everything was normal, I felt fine, I was quite busy but everything was okay. I um, collected my son who was seven at the time, from the childminders, 
and I took him to his swimming lesson and while we were there he was in the water. I just remember I started to feel incredibly tired, like an overwhelming feeling of being tired, like I felt like I could just fall asleep. I remember my son Stanley, he came out of the pool and I rushed him into the changing rooms, getting him changed, which is never easy anyway, but I felt really irritable and quite hot. I just couldn't wait to get outside in the fresh air. We got into the car and luckily it's only about a 10 minute journey to get to our house. So I drove home and pulled on to drive. Stanley rushed off into the house. And I remember sitting there thinking that I sort of feel like I'd gone into an autopilot. I couldn't remember how I got there. I couldn't remember which roads I'd driven down. It was a strange feeling. And then I got out of the car and stepped through the front door. And as I stepped in the door, I got really intense pain right at the back of my head, just at the top of my neck. My husband Adam was in the kitchen and I said to him that I'd got a headache. I remember sitting at the bottom of the stairs, just holding my head. It was so intense. And he said, why don't you go and have a lie down upstairs? So I started heading upstairs. I remember just feeling incredibly vacant. I think Adam thought it seemed unusual. It seemed an unusual place to have a headache. Normally they're all over your head. So he followed me upstairs. By the time we got there, I, I'd got myself on the bed. And I think he went to get me a glass of water. And when he came back, I couldn't move my arms and legs. I sort of deteriorated quite quickly and I couldn't speak. I remember asking him to go and get me a tissue because I could feel myself drooling, but I, no words came out of my mouth. When I opened my mouth, it was just a strange sound. And he realised something, you know, was happening that wasn't right, so... He was on the phone to, I think, initially the doctor because he didn't really know what was happening, didn't think it was that serious and didn't really know what to do. They quickly told him to hang up and ring an ambulance. And meanwhile, I was on the bed. Stanley was next to me and he was, you know, very incredibly worried, didn't know what was happening. And he was calling my name and, you know, tell, asking what was wrong. And I remember seeing everything. I remember everything going on around me. But I just couldn't move. I was completely paralysed. So Adam phoned the ambulance. And then I very quickly started struggling to breathe. I do remember that every breath in started to feel really laboured and I could feel it getting more and more difficult and I made this strange sort of gurgling noise. Luckily the ambulance turned up really quickly 
so I could see Adam stood at the end of the bed, frantically looking out the window, and then the blue lights coming down the road, and then he, you know, sort of looked at me and he knew that things were going to be okay, but I just felt like, like I wasn't really there. It almost felt like I was a fly on the wall watching this situation happening and it wasn't really me. My last memory was an unfamiliar voice calling my name, which must have been the paramedic, and then everything went blank. I was rushed off to hospital. Luckily, we only lived about 10 minutes from the hospital, so they took me off and Adam stayed just to check Stanley was okay, and then he followed behind. Kate was in a critical condition. I was unconscious arriving in hospital, but Adam told me that when I got there, they did a CT scan straight away. I think they suspected a bleed on the brain straight away, but then the scan confirmed that. I think the consultants, they realised that the bleed was on my brainstem in the pons area of my brainstem. So they they spoke to another consultant in Sheffield Hospital, which is a specialised throat unit, and they agreed that they couldn't do anything. They couldn't operate because it was far too risky with where it was in my brain. And all they could do was put me into an induced coma and just really hope for the best. So they kept me in Rotherham Hospital and they seduced me. And then they said to Adam to really contact my family and get them round because potentially I might not survive this. It was a, it's a very rare to have a bleed in that part of the brain and extremely rare to survive it. So my family came that night and they put me into a coma and I was in the coma for four days in total. And I think during that time they sort of brought me round to check I was breathing on my own and then put me back under. And I was showing signs of breathing on my own but they said then that even if I was alive, it was very possible that I would be in a vegetative state when I came round because of where the bleed was in my brain. But they brought me round after four days. I think they didn't know what sort of state I would be in. And I just remember... I remember waking up and someone saying to me that I was in Rotherham Hospital. It was all quite blurry, but I just remember I couldn't move. I couldn't really see properly. My eyes were sort of jumping around. I could only move my eyes up and down. I couldn't move them to the side. I couldn't even move my head. It felt almost like my body was being pinned to the bed. But I was aware of what was happening 
around me, I could see things. Uh, but for a few days, I think it was all quite blurry for me. And no one knew, the doctors didn't know whether I was, whether I was in there or not. They had no idea what, you know, mental state I was in. I remember for a few days, I was sort of in and out of dreams. I didn't really know what was real or not. I would dream that I was being taken into the hospital basement at night because there were too many people on the ward. But I couldn't tell anyone that was happening, so I couldn't find out if that was really happening or not. My body felt really strained. I sometimes felt like I was sinking through the bed and the bed was splitting in half. And I thought, any minute now, I'm just going to land in a big heap on the floor unless someone spots this and pushes my bed back together. I just felt a, a really heavy sensation that I was going to fall. I also had hallucinations, so I would often see people that weren't really there. But again, I didn't know they weren't there. I couldn't tell anyone. I had no way of communicating this. I often thought there was another patient sat in bed with me, and I thought, you know, why are the nurses letting them sit in my bed, surely? They've got their own bed, but I couldn't tell anyone. Doctors were able to find a way to communicate with Kate. They must have realised that I was able to lift my eyes up and down. So someone asked me if I could lift my eyes up for yes and down for no, because I couldn't even really blink properly. They started to ask me a series of questions to see if I knew who I was, if I knew where I was, and if I remembered people's names. And it was at that point that they realised that I was there, that I had mental capacity. So at that point is when they realised that I had locked-in syndrome. So all of my, you know, muscles and my bodily function it was like my body had just completely shut down, like I'd been turned off, but my mind was still fully intact. I was aware of everything around me. I could remember everything. I knew what was going on, but I just, I was like I was completely trapped inside my own body. But then when they realised that I was able to communicate with my eyes, they showed me a, a communication chart. So it's basically the alphabet broken down into different colours. And so if I wanted to talk to someone, they would run down the chart and ask me, is it in the blue, is it in the yellow, etc. When they got to the colour with the letter was in I wanted, I could lift my eyes up to say yes, and then they would go through the letters and then write down the letters and words and sentences on a little whiteboard. So I could finally say more than yes and no. I could 
you know, talk about what was inside my head. I could ask questions about what was happening. And I think it was really at that point that I asked what happened to me because I don't think I really knew up until then. I think doctors must have told me, but I can't remember. I think I was probably so in and out of sleep and I was coming out of sedation. I can't remember. And if that was the point where Adam told me that I'd had a stroke. And I just remember thinking that there's no way I've had a stroke. I was 42, and that's something that happens to all the people. You know, not someone like me that's pretty fit and healthy and look after myself. I just couldn't get my head around it that that was possible. But I had had a stroke, and he explained that it was a bleed on my brain, and that it was in a in a, the part of my br brain where it was just meant it shut my body down. Coming up, Kate talks about deciding to go through further rehab. To go somewhere where I could sort of learn how to live again, in you know. In, a, in an environment similar to home, but where I'd got people on hand to be able to help me. But I also wanted an opportunity to do some more sort of intense rehab, really. I wanted people that were there a lot, that I could have a lot of physio and OT sessions and do as much as I can to get myself to a point where I felt more ready to move home. And achieving independence. I do feel that like independence is there. It's sort of in a touching distance. It's like the light at the end of the tunnel is getting a lot brighter. And I can sort of see that I can be independent. But, but I just get frustrated. I just the little things I still can't do. And Adam still has to do quite a bit for me, so I'm quite dependent on him. He's become my carer. I do have a little bit of support in the morning from some carers that come in. Kate was in hospital for five months and was then moved to a rehab centre where she stayed for a further six months. And when I was discharged from hospital, I really pushed to move into a rehab facility because for me, the thought of coming home at that point was just too scary. I was so dependent on other people. By that point, I'd got movement down my left side of my, my body, some fairly good movement, but not really a lot down my right at all. I'd taken a few steps, but I needed a lot of people around me to do that. The thought of moving home I just found quite scary because I just felt like I would be on my own and it would be a lot of pressure on Adam and Stanley too. I would need a lot of carers and I would have to sleep downstairs and I just didn't want that. So I wanted to go somewhere where I could sort of learn how to live again in, you know, in, a, in an environment similar to home, but where I'd got people on hand to be able to help me. 
but I also wanted an opportunity to do some more sort of intense rehab, really. I wanted people that were there a lot, that I could have a lot of physio and OT sessions and do as much as I can to get myself to a point where I felt more ready to move home. So I was pretty busy. You know, my days were really busy there. And I sort of threw myself into my rehab. But also, I, part of my rehab was things like being able to, learning how to have a shower, you know, on my own and maybe making a cup of tea and carrying on learning to walk and just being in that more of a home environment. And then I moved home in October 22, so just over a year ago. And at that point, I think I just felt ready to move home. I probably could have stayed a bit longer and got myself more independent. But I'd been away from home for nearly a year and I just felt ready to move home. I needed to be around my family and my own environment. And I suppose a big a big milestone for me in terms of before I moved home was I wanted to be able to get upstairs. I didn't want to have to sleep downstairs at home. So I sort of made it a bit of a mission to get up the stairs. And as soon as I'd conquered it, and I needed a lot of help at this point. So this wasn't me going upstairs on my own. I needed I needed help from Adam to actually physically get my right leg up onto the step. But I was so determined to get up these stairs and sleep in my own bed that I, tr- I kept trying. And it was around October that I felt like I was able to do it you know, when I could move home and do that every day. So that was really the the point where I knew that I can go home now. Kate feels good about her future, but recognises there's still progress to be made. I feel positive. I think I definitely have bad days, you know, but my bad days are um, a lot less these, these days. I think... I get more frustrated that I can't do things. And that's that's really what bothers me. It's not so much that I get as upset about the situation. I just get really frustrated. So I suppose my mobility, you know, is still not great. I'm able to... I've got a walking frame... But it's quite a big bulky one with sort of forearm support. So it got a lot of support for my body. And I can walk around the house now with that on my own. But I need I need someone to get it for me and put it in a very specific place so I can get to it. I can't always get up off the sofa on my own depending on how tired I I need help to open doors and things. So I'm... I still feel quite dependent on other people, but I do feel that independence is there. It's sort of in a touching distance. It's like the light at the end of the tunnel. 
on I was getting a lot brighter and I can sort of see that I could be undefended but I just get frustrated at just little things I still can't do and Adam still has to do quite a bit for me so I'm quite dependent on him he's become my carer I do have a little bit of support in the morning from some carers that come in just to help me with getting a shower and getting dressed and taking some physio appointments. But beyond that, Adam does everything for me. You know, I can't do things like I can't get myself in and out of bed. You know, I, and I still, even though I can get upstairs, I need him to be with me because I'm, you know, at risk of falling. I can't get downstairs at all on my own. I need my meals preparing for me, you know, and he also, um, all the other things that you have to do around the house, and he also looks after our son. So it can be quite frustrating at times that I can't do these things. And I also feel that I'm, I'm essentially housebound unless someone comes and physically takes me out. So I... You know, I'm reliant on other people to do a lot of those things. I can't just get up and take myself off out as I would normally. I can't take my son out for the day on my own. I need people to be with me. So it is incredibly hard still. And here is Kate's advice to stroke survivors. Patience, to have patience. I was always been told that Stroke recovery is a long journey, but I don't think I ever really fully grasped how long that would be. So if I think back to maybe a year ago, I don't think I am now where I thought I'd be. When I thought about it, I'm nowhere near there. And I think I just didn't realise how long these things would take. So I think you need to have patience with yourself and be kind to yourself when things seem to take a little bit longer than you expect them. You know, don't beat yourself up about it. Things just take time. And actually, you know, there can be progress made all the time. And sometimes in day-to-day life, you don't notice them because they're so small. And it's not when you take a step back and look at the bigger picture. And then that's when I suddenly realise that I'm doing something that I couldn't do six months ago. I couldn't do three months ago. I definitely couldn't do, you know, two years ago. So I think it's really important to be patient and also just to, to not give up. I think it's important to, you know, try and stay positive, focus on the things that you can do, rather than dwelling on all those things that you can't do anymore. Think about the things you can do, things that you can do to progress, and try and stay positive, and just, yeah, don't give up on yourself. Kate suffered a bleed in the pons region of her brain, which shut her body down, 
and resulted in her suffering from locked-in syndrome. But after spending almost a year in recovery, she returned home at the end of 2022 and is making great progress. Thank you for supporting us at Stroke Stories. Please do recommend the podcast to anybody you think it might help. And if you are a stroke survivor and there's a story you can share, please get in touch via X or Instagram. Our DMs are open. The Stroke Stories podcast was produced by Aidan Judd. I'm Mark Goodyear. Thank you for listening.